Let's ask the Lord for His help this morning as we come to His Word. Our Father in Heaven, we come to Thy Word very conscious this morning that this is a sacred time and a transformative time, but aware that we need much help in the preaching and much help in the hearing. And so we ask Thee this morning, Lord, in the depths of our souls, to be our help, O oh God, and bless for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I'd like to draw your attention to the first two verses of Philippians chapter 2. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, and of one mind. Now, the last time we were in the book of Philippians, which would have been three weeks ago, because we had our service where we thought about the incarnation of Jesus, and then we had our service last Lord's Day where we talked about Nehemiah and a motto text for this year. So the last time we were in Philippians, we noted that this chapter begins, if you remember, with Paul exhorting the Philippians to Christian unity. And the whole thrust of the beginning of this chapter is Paul's emphasis on unity, the importance of unity. And verse 4 really reveals the importance that Paul placed on unity. Verse 2, excuse me, when he says, Fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Paul's joy was that the Philippians would be like-minded, that they would have the same love towards one another for God, that they would be of one accord in harmony, that they would be of one mind, of one passion. This, Paul says, is the fulfilling of his joy. And this is a very significant thing. Because if you remember... What was Paul writing in order to do in the second half of Philippians chapter 1? He was writing in order to convince the Philippians that although he was in prison, he was rejoicing. Wasn't he writing for that matter, to, to, in order to convince them that fact? He was saying, yes, I'm suffering. Yes, there's difficulties. But I'm rejoicing. And he speaks about how he rejoices because the gospel is being, um, being proclaimed. He's rejoicing because he's magnifying Christ in prison. He's rejoicing because the believers at Rome were emboldened. And then you come to Philippians 2, verse 2, and what does he say? Fulfill ye my joy. And that word fulfill, it comes from the idea of cramming a net full like a fish. Cramming a net so full that it's about to burst or filling up some hollow place. So when he says, fulfill ye my joy, he's in essence saying, cram full my joy. I have joy, but if you want to cram full my joy, if you want my cup to be full to the brim with joy, then be a unified church. This fulfills my joy. This brings my joy to the top. I want nothing more than to see you unified. 
I want nothing more than to see you of one accord. I want nothing more than the division to stop, the backbiting to stop, the gossiping to stop, the disagreements to stop. I want there to be unity among Christ's people. This would fulfill Paul's joy. And we made the note last time that, that Paul's understanding of, of unity was in many ways very different, is in many ways very different from ours sometimes. He placed a huge preeminence on unity. He placed a great value on unity, which sometimes we may not. And we, we talked about the importance of Christian unity. And as we come to Philippians chapter 2, then verse 1, we really come to Paul exhorting the Philippians to Christian unity. I mean, it follows naturally, doesn't it? If it fulfills Paul's joy that they be unified, if he places such a value on unity, if he wants nothing more than unity, then flowing from that is going to be Paul pleading with them to be unified. He's going to plead with them now. Be a unified church. But the way he does it is very, very instructive to us. Um, many times we see things that are wrong in a church or in people and we may know what is right. So we have a goal in mind. We want this change to take place. I would like to see my, my wife or my husband or my children look more like Christ in this area. We have this goal in mind or a church to look more like Christ in this area. We have a goal in mind. But how do we get people to change? That's the question. Now notice what Paul does not do. In, in verse 1, he does not berate them. You won't find anything of Paul saying in a condescending manner, I can't believe that you would act like this and that you're just, you're just a good-for-nothing church. I just can't believe that you even dare to continue to exist. Paul doesn't berate them. He doesn't speak condescendingly to them. He doesn't treat them harshly. What does he do? In verse 1, he tells them of the blessings that they have in Christ. If there be consolation in Christ, if there be comfort of love, if there be fellowship of the Spirit, if bowels and mercies. And yes, don't get me wrong, he is going to. He is going to exhort them and rebuke them. But he does it in the context of the blessings that they know in Christ. Remember when we looked at chapter 1, verse 27, living in the light of the gospel. We talked about how preaching the law outside of the context of the gospel becomes legalism. And Paul is very, very wise and he's very skilled at law and gospel. And so what does he do? He tells them of the blessings they have in Christ and then saying in the light of these blessings, how can you live this way? So Paul is not a frustrated, if he was a pastor, a frustrated pastor standing up, shaking his head in frustration. I can't believe you're the way that you are. You don't listen to me. You don't act right. Paul's not that way. Paul says, look at what you have in Christ. Look at what a merciful Savior. Don't you have these experiences in your life? How can you live this way then? He's a wise shepherd. 
He's taking the rod and he's prodding the sheep. But the sheep know that the rod comes from the hand of a loving shepherd. That's what makes the difference. He's a shepherd. He's not simply a law enforcer. He's a shepherd. Gently, wisely, graciously shepherding the people. It's in many ways like a child who's been disobedient at home. And instead of the parents sitting them down and going, how can you act this way? How can you be so disrespectful? You're just a good-for-nothing child. I mean, I don't even know why... I don't, even, I don't even know why God gave you to us. You can imagine how that would hurt. It would be terrible. It would be like a family doing this, sitting down their child or children and saying this. You know how your mother and father love you. You know how your mother and father take care of you, don't you? You know how many things we've bought you, how we work hard to put food on your table, how we work so hard to get if you go to school to get you into a school or to homeschool you, you see how your mother and father take care of you and how we love you. It's only right for you to be respectful in this house. You see the difference. And that carries great weight. It's not simply a frustrated, angry parent doing everything they can to just make them change now. And if they don't, we're going to be furious and we're going to even perhaps speak in a condescending way to them. But we're telling them, explaining to them the grace that they experience in this home, the mercy they know in this home and saying in the light of that, how can you act this way? You see the weight of the rebuke, it becomes so much more when it's coming from the lips of one who loves. And so this is what the Apostle Paul is doing. He explains to them their privileges before he really brings this rebuke to them. And so as we look at verse one, we see four motivations to Christian unity. And it's these four things, consolation in Christ, comfort of love, fellowship with the, or of the Spirit, and bowels and mercies. So let's look first, consolation in Christ. Now, before we look at consolation in Christ, we need to look at this little word, if. If there be, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies. When you read the word if in the English, you might be tempted to, to wonder if Paul means these things could be in your life or they might not be in your life. You may have experienced these things or you may not have experienced these things. If, meaning there's a possibility, it's, it's not a reality for you. But that is not what the word if means here. And bear with me for a moment just with a little bit of of Greek to explain this to you. The Greek word if here is what you call a first class conditional um, clause. And there are conditional clauses that mean if. You translate if. Some of those conditional clauses you would translate if and it means if and it may be and it may not be. But a first-class conditional clause means if and it is. If and it is. So you could translate it, which would be a clearer translation, to say because. Because there's consolation in Christ. Because there's comfort of love. Because there's fellowship of the Spirit. Because there are bowels and mercies. You see this same phenomenon in Colossians chapter 3, where Paul writes, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Well, is he saying to the believers, If you're risen with Christ, 
Because you may not be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. No, he's saying because you're risen with Christ. And that's what the word if means here. It means if, and of course this is true. So when he says, if there be any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels of mercies, he's saying, because these things are true. These things are true of you. There's no such thing as a believer who does not have the fellowship of the Spirit, brothers and sisters. There's no such thing as a believer who does not know the consolation that's in Christ. And so that's what the Apostle Paul means. So he says, because or if there be any consolation in Christ... Now, the word translated consolation means to call to one side to the purpo- for the purpose of cheering. To call to one side for the purpose of cheering. And it's significant that one of Christ's names is the consolation of Israel. In Luke 2, verse 25, we read, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Ghost was upon him. What does it mean that Christ is the consolation of Israel? Well, the Israel that was under Roman control, the Israel that was waiting and in bondage, Uh, wondering when the Messiah would come, many of the Israelites in their sin. Christ is that Messiah who comes and he comes to Israel and he cheers them. He's the one who comes and says, I am the one who's the promised Messiah. I am the sacrificial lamb. I am the coming king. I will redeem you, not from Roman rule, but from the spiritual rule of Satan. He's the consolation of Israel. He's the one that those who looked for redemption in Israel were waiting for. The Redeemer, Jesus, the Consoler of Israel. But isn't he also the Consoler of his spiritual Israel? He's the Consoler of his people. He comes alongside his people and he cheers them in their sorrow and their brokenness. And isn't that what he did when he saved you? He was the consolation of Israel. He came to you. Maybe, maybe you were weeping over your sin. Now, we all come to Christ in a different way. And we have to understand that. Not everybody who comes to Christ comes weeping. Not everybody who comes to Christ has, uh, can, can tell you, this was the time and this was my experience. Not everybody who comes to Christ can tell you of a time when they felt the great load of sin. We all come different ways. But anyone who comes who has come to Jesus, now, now feels the weight of their own sin and now looks by faith to Jesus Christ and now lives a lifestyle of repentance. But it may be that when you came to Christ, you were in tears, you lived a wicked life and you felt the load of your sin. And what did Christ do? He came to you and he cheered you, didn't he? He said, the son of man hath power on earth to forgive sin. He's the consoler. There are people that are discouraged, that are down because they're depressed, because they feel the weight and the load of their sin. And they feel that they're in danger of hell. And Jesus is the consolation of Israel. He's the one who comes and says, the son of man, he has power to forgive your sins. I will freely all forgive. I've done everything necessary. Just trust in me. Rest in me. 
but he consoles spiritual Israel in many ways. He, I think of believers who, who really struggle with assurance and they don't know where they stand with God, even though they are believers. They, they struggle with experiencing the joy and delight of knowing that they're loved by God. And yes, that ebbs and flows, but sometimes for some believers, it is so ebbing, it's so little, that they greatly struggle feeling that they're not even loved by God. And he's the consoler. He's the one who comes to the child of God and he cheers them and he says, as, as he said in the gospel, son, be of good cheer. Thy sins be forgiven thee. Son, be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. Rejoice, delight, be of good cheer. Thy sins be forgiven thee. What a, what a glorious text for somebody who struggles with that. Be of good cheer, Jesus says. Has not my blood paid the penalty? Is not my intercession effectual? Do not I love you? Have not I indwelt you by my spirit? Be of good cheer. Thy sins be forgiven thee. He consoles his people. He comes alongside them in anxiety. He says, cast all your care upon me, for I care for you. Doesn't he cheer us? I can think of times, I'm sure you, you can, when you are afraid, when you are anxious, and you've known the Lord Jesus to come, to draw near to you, and to, as it were, put his arm around you and to say, be of good cheer, my son. Be of good cheer, my daughter. Fear thou not, neither be thou dismayed. The Lord thy God, he will strengthen thee. He will help thee. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the fire, you will not be burned. You've known that cheering grace of Christ. And sometimes it's, it's just his gracious presence. Have you ever been so broken that, that all you can do is weep. And you've known the presence of Christ to draw so near to you. It's as if he just sits and weeps with you. There's a story told of Queen Victoria of England. And Queen Victoria had a friend and this friend lost her child. It's a very hard thing to lose your child. And Queen Victoria called this woman to come and meet with her. And when she met with her, they spent quite a bit of time together and when the woman left, some of her neighbors said, what did the queen say to you? What did the queen do to you? And the woman replied, all the queen did was put her hands on mine and sit and weep with me. And isn't that what Jesus has done for so many of us in the depth of, of sorrow? He's just put his hands on ours and he sat down and wept with us. Haven't we known that? The sweet, gracious consolation of the one named Jesus who comes and draws near to us and he cheers us. And you know what Paul is saying? Paul is saying, believers, how can you, who know the consolation of Jesus, be so unconsoling to your brethren? That's what he's saying. 
How can you, who time after time after time have known Jesus to come put his arm around you, so to speak, and whisper his promises and weep with you and care for you, to treat your brothers and sisters as if you don't even know them? How can you? You see, the force of his rebuke when it's backed by the gospel privileges. How can you? And he goes on and he talks about the comfort of love, the comfort of love. What does he mean by the comfort of love? Oh, the whole Christian life is birthed and lived and consummated in an atmosphere of love, isn't it? Everything about the Christian life speaks of love. It's full of love. I mean, the Father chose us in love. He sent His Son to die for us in love. He set up His Son as our covenant representative in love. Didn't He? We were born again. We read the other day that passage from Ezekiel where the Lord finds the infant lying in His own blood and He cries, live, live. And He says, no, I pitied you. And the Lord found us when no, I pitied us in our sin, in our depravity. And He cried, live. And we were born again and it was all by love. And he keeps us by love. He upholds us in his, in his love. He hasn't just saved us enough to get us into the Christian life and then we have to try to keep ourselves there. But his love is such to us that many waters cannot quench it. Nothing can take us out of his hand. Nothing can separate our souls from the Savior. Nothing can remove us from his love. We're surrounded by love. Every time the Lord's Supper is given, we, we are seeing his love proclaimed before us, displayed before us. Every time that we, we go through a, a trial and we still hold to Christ, we're reminded of the love of the Holy Spirit that continues to uphold us. I was talking to somebody the other day who doesn't believe that that someone who's saved will be kept by Christ. And I was explaining to them that the love of God is such to us that He has done everything necessary to save us fully. He has not simply done a work to save us from the penalty of our sin, but he has done a work that will save us fully, to save us from the power of sin. He has done such a work that we cannot be lost. We cannot be separated from his love because he will not allow one of his loved children. He will not allow. His love is too strong. His love is indestructible. He will not allow one of them to slip out of his fingers. It's not possible. And so from everything, from creation to the giving of his word, to the sending of his son, to saving us, everything is saying, I love you from God. He's, he's saying, I love you. Look at the creation. I love you. Look at my word. I love you, my people. Look at what he's done in redeeming us. He loves us. And this is perhaps the greatest comfort any Christian can have in any time, isn't it? That you're loved by God. When you've fallen away from the Lord, you've fallen into sin and you feel your sin, what's the only comfort you can have sometimes? He loves me. When you can't understand why something has taken place in God's sovereignty, what's the only comfort? I know He loves me. You've known the comfort of His love. I mean, His, his love is is written, as one said, in characters of blood. 
Every time you go to the cross, you know he is love and he has loved. And I think of Thomas Watson's quote. He said this, O saints, do but let your thoughts dwell upon the love of Christ, who passed by angels and thought of you, who was wounded that out of his wounds the balm of Gilead might come to heal you, who leaped into the sea of his father's wrath to save you from drowning. We need to be thinking often of Christ's love to our souls. Has that been on your mind this week, believer? Has it been on your mind? What do you think about throughout the week? Do you think about the love of God to your soul? Do you meditate on the love of Christ to your soul? When you're just working and you're you're not really thinking about anything specifically, does your mind gravitate to the love of Christ to me? What do you think about? John Owen one time said that the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to Him is to not believe that He loves you. The greatest unkindness you can do to Him is not to believe that He loves you. And the believer who who lacks this knowledge of God's love to their souls who doesn't believe that God loves them, despite all he's done in their lives, despite his promises, they still, I don't know if he really loves me. I'm just not sure. You're doing the greatest unkindness you could imagine to your father who loves you so much you cannot even understand it. He's saying, I just want my child to know I love him. And he's, he has the cross before your eyes, the memorial of his love, and yet we still, we still doubt his love to us, don't we? And the greatest comfort any believer can have in their life is to be assured that God loves them. That's the greatest comfort. So we ought to take time to meditate on that, to ask God to help us to not doubt His love, which is a great unkindness to Him and perhaps grieves Him more than anything because He's a loving Father. And what is Paul saying to us then? He's saying, believers, you have been comforted in the worst of times because you know that your father loves you. And yet you don't even treat your brethren with love. Wait a second. You're telling me that really the, the, you, could, you could say the essence of your religion is love. The essence of your religion is that you're loved by God. You're loved and yet you don't even treat your brethren with love. So you can experience all the blessings of the comforts of God's love and then keep the comforts of knowing you love another brother for, for yourself. One of the greatest comforts is to have another brother or sister tell you, I love you. I'm praying for you. And how, how is it that we can have a relationship with God that looks like a father loving his children? And then in the way we treat the rest of the children, we are nothing like the way our Father is to us. And this is the thrust of Paul's argument here. Be unified. Let others know the comfort of love. How can we take and take and take and never give? 
And then he points out the fellowship of the Spirit. This is another privilege that the church has. The fellowship of the Spirit. This refers to the communion that all believers have with the Holy Spirit and consequently with the Father and the Son and with all that are in them. It's the fellowship that all believers have with the Spirit of God, consequently with the Father and the Son, and with all that are in them. So this ties up the whole church in unity, the fellowship of the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 13 verse 14 directly refers to the believer's privilege of communion with the Holy Spirit. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. The communion of the Holy Ghost. That's the same as the fellowship that's being spoken of with the Spirit. But notice in this benediction that those that know the communion with the Holy Ghost know the grace of Christ. And they know the love of God, which refers to the Father. And that shows us the Trinity, doesn't it? To receive the Spirit is to receive the Father and the Son. One God, three persons. To receive one is to receive all. And so to be in fellowship with the Spirit and to have communion with the Spirit is to have communion with the Father and to have communion with the Son. And so the church has communion with God in all of His persons. And this is incredibly profound. We're talking about sinful, alienated men who are brought into the communion and the fellowship of the Trinity. I mean, that's just unbelievably profound. That eternal, delightful relationship that the Trinity had, perfect, pure, infinite love between them, we are brought into communion with them, with God. Those who are totally alienated are brought into communion with God. And if we are believers, we know something of communion with God. We pray that in this service we would know communion with God. We pray that as we're sitting under the preaching, as we pray, as we sing, we know communion with God. This tells us something wonderful about our relationship with God and His relationship to us. It's not merely cold and clinical, is it? It's not something like a king to those who serve Him. It's, it's a relationship, a living relationship between a father and his children between a redeemer and his people, a husband and his wife. This is a relationship we're involved in with a person. And we know the communion of the fellowship and the fellowship of the Spirit and the Son and the Father. And if we know that communion, who are we also united to? We're united to all of the church. The faith that united you to Jesus also unites you to the church. The Spirit of God works faith in us and by faith we are brought into union with the Son. When we are brought into union with the Son, we are also brought into union with all that are in the Son. You are inextricably wed to the church. You are one body. If you had the fellowship of the Spirit and the communion of the Spirit, you are also in communion with the body. 
But here, I think, is what Paul is getting at. I think two things. First, how strange is it? How odd is it for a family where the children commune and love their father but want nothing to do with their brothers and sisters? How contradictory. What does that look like? It doesn't look like the gospel. And then I think also he's getting at this. You know how delightful and joyful it is to have precious communion with God. And do you not understand that the same delight that you have in communion with God is to flow throughout the church as they commune with one another. That the delight that you have in communing with God, you should know something of that that delight, that love, that joy when you commune with your brother or sister who's indwelt by the same God. And so Paul in a sense is saying, you know what you're missing? You should have such delightful fellowship with one another, such joyful fellowship with one another. You're indwelt by the same God. You're all in this wonderful, loving body, this family of communing with God together. You should be in delightful fellowship with one another. And you could know so much more of the joy of God in fellowship with one another. And this, this is so important to understand that It's not simply, you should be unified, and if you don't, you're wrong. That's true, but you should be unified, and if you don't, you're missing so much joy. You're missing so much from from blessing from God. And so the believer puts up walls, and they they make quick judgments, and they they gossip, and they look, look wrong at another brother and talk poorly about them. And deep down in their hearts, I'm sure they know that they don't know something of the joy of God. So the fellowship of the believers, there there should be something when when somebody walks in, and not perfect, but they sense these brothers and sisters love one another like their God loves them. The same love that's in the Trinity that we know being loved by God and loving Him, we see something of in the church. And then Paul goes on to speak about bowels and mercies. This is the final motivation he gives to the Philippians. If any bowels and mercies, or because you know the bowels and mercies of God. We already touched on the word bowels when we looked at Philippians 1 and verse 8, when Paul said, For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And we noted that the word bowels literally means the bowels. But it's used figuratively in the New Testament to speak of the deepest seat of of emotion, feeling pity, and compassion. Bowels and mercies simply refer to the tender mercies, the gentle, pitiful, compassionate way that God deals with his children. The patient, long-suffering, gracious way he deals with them. James 5.11 says of God, the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. And haven't you all, haven't we all experienced this from God? 
I mean, how many times after being saved have you sinned and sinned terribly? And you should have been cut off from God. But how tender, how merciful was he? When you look at the history of Israel, of Israel and Judah when they split in two kingdoms, you see the people constantly, constantly doubting God, constantly sinning against him, constantly going back on their word over and over and over again. And the Lord just comes back to them and he comes back to them and he comes back to them. And that's what he does with spiritual Israel. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You may run from me like Gomer's, like Hosea's Gomer, but I will never run from you. He's so, he's so faithful. He's so long-suffering. And we could do the same thing over and over and over again. He just gently prods us, just gently pushes us. He, I mean, we've done the same thing over and over and over and reading the word. And again, we see what we've done. Again, we see who we lost our temper. Again, we see how we were so full of pride. Again, we see our foolish decisions. And the Lord just graciously says, hey, look at this. Look, this is, you, you, need, you need to work on this. This is not good. This is not like me. You need to work on this graciously, tenderly, long-sufferingly, kindly, doesn't he? He just comes back again and again. When, when we're weak, he doesn't break the bruised reed. He doesn't quench the smoking flax. He doesn't come to a believer when they're, when they're weak and they're struggling with temptation, just squash them, squash them. He doesn't do that. He lifts them up. He strengthens them. He helps them. He's gracious to them. See, we've known the tenderness of God. And Paul is saying, how can you be so quick to anger with your brethren? I mean, how many times have you done something and you deserve to be cut off from God? And God is gracious to you. And I'm not talking about just once, I'm talking about over and over and over and over again. You continue to be unfaithful. You continue to do the wrong thing. And yet God never leaves you, never forsakes you, never treats you unlovingly, never treats you ungraciously, never wants nothing to do with you. And right when somebody wrongs you, I'm done. That is nothing, nothing like the way God treats you. So Paul's saying, He's so tender and merciful to you and you are so not tender and so not merciful, Philippi. How can you act like that when your God over and over and over and over and over again has treated you this way? He's just pleading with them. He's just, he's begging them. He's saying, look at, look at how God treats you. Look at your own failures. Look at your own brokenness. Treat your brothers and your sisters with the same kind of patience, with the same kind of grace. See, it's a powerful plea to unity. And so Paul is saying, look at the consolation you know in Christ. Look at the comfort you know in his love. Look at the fellowship you have in the spirit. Look at the bowels and mercies you experience in Christ and be a unified church. And as we close, I just want to step back once again and and just say, see how Paul is, is motivating them to obedience. Just note this again. He is showing them their privileges and then he is about to rebuke them, but with a rod of love. And this makes the rebuke sting a lot. It hurts when it comes from a loving shepherd. And I just want to share with you a hymn from 
John Newton and William Cooper's hymn book called the Only Hymn Book. Um, this just gives such a, a wonderful description of, of, of the gospel motivating us to obedience. How long beneath the law I lay in bondage and distress. I toiled the precept to obey, but toiled without success. What shall I do was then the word that I may worthier grow. What shall I render to the Lord is my inquiry now. To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into a choice. That is what Paul has just done. Do you see all that you have? It changes a a slave into a child and duty into a choice. So let's end with a word of prayer. May the Lord bless his word to our hearts today. Our Father in heaven, we thank thee for the word of God. Lord, our hearts are convicted to think of how Christ treats us and how we do not treat one another in the same way. Oh God, work this in us. Work in us to will and to do of thy good pleasure. Make us more like our Savior. Oh Lord, make us loving and tender and gracious like him. For Jesus' sake, bless thy people. Amen.